Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello everybody, uh, wherever you happen to be today. We are uh, here for another GodPod, uh, which is um, a lot of fun, and uh, we have Mike. We do. You don't get away without me very often, I'm afraid. Mike's uh, mouth is not full of cake now, as it was a moment ago. It was. It's crap. And uh, it's very good, good cake, actually. It's did, very did you healthy. Make it yourself. I didn't make it myself. No, I didn't. I do make um, cakes myself. Okay. Frankly, healthy ones, which only use olive oil and that kind of thing. Yeah, good. GodPod is getting more like Test Match Special every time. I think <laughs> <laughs> we end up discussing cake. Oh, is that what Test Match Special discusses? In that case, I might be prepared to listen. Yeah, to that's right. Yes, it does. It does. Between the cricket, you get. Sort of Henry Blofeld's cakes. So, if any on. listeners do want to send in cakes to Godpod team, I'm sure that's a, that's a very good idea. Them, it's a very good idea. So, um, yes, uh, we have Jane. Yes, we, we do. We do, as we've heard already. And that mysterious voice you heard, <laughs> which you might have recognised, or you might recognise because he's been on the Godpod before, is uh, Nick Spencer. Hello there. And uh, so, Nick, welcome to Godpod. And Thank you. again. Um, Nick is um, what's your what's your official title at Theos? Official title of Director of Studies. Director of Studies Theos. at Theos, which is a uh, th- public theology think tank, which does excellent work here in London, but um, it gets uh, around quite a bit. So, um, and uh, Nick and I have known each other for many, many years. Many years, yeah. We were in not quite in short trousers, years, but yeah. um, yes, I think both university in short trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Nick was a student at the college in Oxford where I was a chaplain many years ago, which is great fun. Um, and um, in fact, and you've um, cooperated on a book together, haven't you? We did actually. We did write right. a book together. Yeah. What was it called? The Responsive Church. The Responsive Church. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Did you get a good response? <laughs> I don't know, really. Mm, pass on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, yeah, put it down to experience. <laughs> um, but uh, I can't remember, what, last time you came, we talked about lots of different things, didn't we? We did. I know we talked about immigration and a We talked bit. about immigration. That's right, we did. Yeah, exactly, because you'd written a report on that. But, and um, just war, I think, as well. We did. Gosh, yeah. we covered a lot. It was a light one, that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but this time we thought we'd uh, get Nick in on uh, the Godpod because... Um, He's um, written one or two things recently, which would be good to to explore. But before we get into that, I just thought I'd mention one email that came in um, from someone called Oliver, Ollie, Ollie, Ollie May. Um, I don't know if we know Ollie May, do we? I don't know yeah, Ollie May, I but so anyway. I think I do, know. Uh, it was quite a, a nice little email that said this. Just wanted to drop a line to thank you for Godpod, which has dramatically improved my miserable Victoria Line-based mornings on the London high-intensity compression system. <laughs> I think otherwise known as the tube. Um, although Mike could do with speaking up. Uh, that's quite true. I, I'm very backward and shy and that that's kind right. of thing. As every time the vile rattling contraption lunges in an interesting new direction, the resulting grinding noise cancels him out. Oh, I see. I thought I was the vile <laughs> contraption. <laughs> so trying to rewind an iPod when you're standing in someone else's armpit and resting under someone else's chin is an adventure, as I'm sure you can all imagine. Well, just don't bother. I mean, if you can't hear Mike, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Not worth listening to anyway. Jane wishes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he says, as many moons ago, a graduate in theology from the University of Manchester... Um, Although at the time, my somewhat arrogant dissertations, I recall, tried to convince the universe that the Apostle Paul was a secret Stoic. Um, I am a little starved of the depth of God conversation that I'd like in cell groups, so Godpod has been great for keeping me topped up in the ongoing quest to understand what God's up to. 
Bishop Wright in particular was absolutely first class. It says that not all, not all of your guests are willing to grapple with the issues as bravely as the presenters. Mm. Oh, very true, That's very good. true. So there, anyway. You're on your metal now. Well, absolutely. Seek to continue that yeah. uh, <laughs> tradition. But all episodes are expertly steered and managed to hit that balance of insightful analysis which never goes off base or outside faithful Christian doctrine. So there's a bit Are of you sh- sure you didn't write this, Graham? <laughs> no, yours, Graham, o- Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly didn't write it. Do you think we should occasionally invite a listener to come in and join us on GodPod? It would be it quite fun, wouldn't it? Oliver would be quite fun to have on. Exactly. So if you want to, yeah, if you if you want to um, do that, maybe you can email us in. Do we, do we ever get any stinking letters that we ought to read out as well? <laughs> so, no, they just don't bother listening anymore. <laughs> they just okay. turn us off at that point. But anyway, so thank you, Ollie, for that nice little bit of uh, shameless self-publicity indeed. for us. But um, so um, sorry, indeed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Nick, uh, the, the the book we wanted to spend some time on um, today is your um, new book called Darwin and God, which uh, came out uh, a little while ago, February, I think. February, and you uh, sensibly wrote it without. Graham, this time. That's yeah, right, very I, sensibly. I the albatross on this occasion. <laughs> and it's been selling a lot better. Yeah, millions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And um, this is actually published by SPCK and is selling for... £9.99. £9.99 in all good bookshops and Amazon and everything else. Um, so, um, and obviously this is a, it's a kind of important year for, for Darwin, isn't it? Yes, it is, very and, uh, are, you going to a, <laughs> are you going to do a, a biography of Handel before the year's out as well? Not Handel, no. No, I don't think no. I could um, yeah. get a grip on that. Or John Calvin? Five, well, uh, 500 years since he was born? Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. yes there's a lot of anniversaries this year, aren't there? And, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, who was born on the same day as Charles Darwin yeah, was he? in 1809, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, to Dar- yeah, Darwin is... Um, obviously, Darwin's everywhere this year. But what, what, what led you to write this in the first place because you're not really a scientist by background are you uh, not at all a scientist by background <laughs> really was very generous mm. um uh, darwin and god is part of a larger project that theos has been conducting for much of the last 18 months or so really um we were aware a couple of years or so ago that 2009 would be a very big darwin anniversary the 200th anniversary of his birth and the 150th anniversary of the publication of the origin of species and we were also alert to the fact that the most um, vocal modern atheists are also very vocal Darwinians. And we were slightly concerned that they may use 2009 as an opportunity to bang the atheist drum. Um, in this instance, entirely illegitimately, really, because as we'll probably discuss, Darwin himself wasn't an atheist and thought theism and evolution was compatible, although he did himself lose his Christian faith. Um, and it is the position of a very large number of Christians, I would think the majority, that um, evolution and um, Christianity are compatible. So we undertook a project which was a lot larger than this particular book, looking at Darwinism and theism, or Darwinism and Christianity more specifically, and understanding, um, doing research into what the British public actually believes about this, and more research into why those who reject evolution do so, and what are, what are the grounds. And also... Um, um, looking at Darwin's own religious beliefs, which, bizarrely, hadn't found their way into a book form in this country ever. There has been a book on Darwin's religious beliefs published in America about eight or nine years ago now, but given how um, famous Darwin is and how linked his name is with religion, there's been nothing on him and his religious beliefs. Mm. And yet everybody thinks that they know that he stopped believing in God because of yep. um, his discoveries about evolution. Is uh, that true or not true? Um, it's partly true. 
It's partly true. I mean, you sometimes hear people say that Darwin entirely lost his faith because of the death of his daughter, Annie, when he was 42 years old. She was 10. We might might come on to that. That's undoubtedly, there's a lot of truth into that. But for at least 10 years before Annie's death, his Christian faith had been a pretty threadbare thing, really. Um, It's also worth exploring, as as we may, what his Christian faith was, because that's one of the most interesting things. He didn't really come from a particularly orthodox family, and he grew up in a culture in which... Christianity was it was a very particular kind of Christianity, and that, I think, helped him lose his faith when he did lose your, it. Your first chapter is called A Sort of Christian, The mm. Faith Darwin Lost. And, um, and you know, because early Victorian times, there was a lot of variety in types of Christian faith, um, and some of it not particularly Christian. Mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, do, do you want to say a little bit more about what those influences were and... and yeah, you, you kind of wonder what the faith was and mm. whether it was worth losing or keeping. Mm. Anyway. Darwin himself used that phrase, a sort of Christian, in The Voyage of the Beagle, when um, he's talking to some Catholic ladies, as he describes them, in <laughs> South America. And um, they're horrified that he actually visited churches just to look at them as opposed to worship in them. And they said, you know, why are you not a, why are you not a Christian like us? And he said, well, I'm, I'm a sort of Christian, by which he meant an Anglican sort of Christian. <laughs> Whatever sort of Christian that is, exactly. The best sort. Yeah, <laughs> undoubtedly, the voice of orthodoxy there. <laughs> With a small O. <laughs> yeah. but, he, but it also applies to the kind of Anglican he was. And he was, his Christianity, at least up until his Beagle voyage, was a rational, logical, demonstrable civilizing english thing he had his family background was variously skeptical and 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 unitarian as well so rejecting christian orthodoxy like that he went up to study medicine at edinburgh which was the family trade his father and his grandfather had studied medicine become doctors and he hadn't taken to it and so at the age of um where would he have been in the age of about 17 18 19 um his um, father, who was getting increasingly fed up with his lack of direction, said, well, you know, if you're not going to become a doctor, there's only one suitable career for a gentleman like yourself. And that is, of course, the ordained ministry. And to Darwin's credit, he paused before accepting um, his father's instructions to study. And he read some books. And it's interesting to look at the books he did read. These These are things like Bishop Pearson's classic 1659 exposition of the Apostles' Creed and Bishop Sumner's book on the evidences of Christianity. These were things that proved Christianity. Paley? Does he read Paley? Well, he's forced to read Paley at Cambridge. Paley okay. is, is mandatory for um, or, um, ordinance at Cambridge, but not natural theology, which is Paley's big, famous book about how you can prove the existence and nature of God from nature Mm. but darwin chose to read that and he was hugely impressed with it and that's really important because that kind of ordered natural theology was the foundation stone of his christian faith at that time at that time and and, and as he went on to the the beagle obviously he didn't he never was ordained and his heart was clearly never fully in it even during this most orthodox of periods that's presumably why he was so vulnerable to looking at the nastiness of nature as a naturalist and thinking it doesn't quite work absolutely mm. if you're brought up to believe that god designed the world tailored the world for the ease and comfort of early 19th century victorian gentlemen mm. for a start some of the things he experiences on the beagle you know an earthquake a volcanic eruption naked Fijians waving spears and screaming at him that disturbs him this isn't the ordered world of, of, of william Payne. to believe yeah, precisely and then even more so when he comes in to develop his theory when he gets back from the Beagle, that 
really begins to undermine those Paleon foundations. And wasn't there, wasn't there a sort of kind of Unitarian strain to to his early influences and, and faith as well? Well, his mother was a Unitarian, and she mm. took him to the Unitarian chapel. Do you think you should tell us what Unitarians are? Yeah, I mean, I, I, even then, I think there was different kinds of, of Unitarian, but but effectively for, for Darwin, it meant, or for Darwin's family, for the Wedgwood family, in fact, with him, he was cousin, it meant a, a kind of Christianity shorn of um, the divinity of Christ, mm. the Trinity, mm. and even Revelation as well, and it it... It for for the Wedgwoods there was an emphasis on 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 feeling and and um, emotion as well, which Darwin himself never shared, but his wife Emma did, and that was actually quite important to her. It is interesting in a way, isn't it? Because I guess any Christian answer to the or at least approach to the those kind of problems of suffering and evil within the world have to have some kind of Christological focus you have without to say something Christ about the cross. That's difficult right. to yes. Yes. Begin and the cross is saying something about God, yes. not just yes. about a nasty Roman practice. Yep. 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 I think that's I mean that goes right to the heart of the matter because um, when Darwin witnessed Annie's death in eighteen fifty one um, she was his favourite child. He was at her bedside for the entire last week of her life. It was a wretched, degrading mm. death. Mm. And um, it devastated him. Now, it, it, we have to emphasise that you can have the most cross-centred of faiths yeah. in the world, and that yeah. could still devastate you. But the and point sure. is, in some ways, but the point is a, a, a Christ-less Christianity will offer no help, yeah. and certainly a Christianity in which you know you have led to believe that more or large, but by and large, everything is for the good and everything is well ordered. Then that kind of suffering devastates yeah. that faith. Yeah. No, I'm I just thinking, if you don't have Christ being divine, then the cross is not God in any way entering into the pain and the mess mm. of, of the world and, and in some sense mm. taking it into itself, in some sense absorb, absorbing it, in some sense yeah. uh, trans, transforming it and giving hope for it. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other the other thing that I would have thought would have helped would be some, this is my particular pet um, theory, uh, the fallenness of nature. If you look at nature as just revealing God straight, as if that's how he designed it, then when you find that it's violent and cruel and bloody and unpleasant um, and destructive, then you've got real problems. Whereas if you see things have gone, having gone profoundly wrong and that having affected the natural order as well as everything else, mm. then you don't have to look at it and say, mm. Um, mm. this is how God designed it, what kind of God are, are we dealing with mm. here? Um, so, Nick, you've, you've taken us to, to um, Darwin as a, a sort of Christian um, on the Beagle, uh, and we've touched on a number of different biographical sort of factors in his in his life that led him away from a from from a, a kind of an Orthodox Christian faith. I mean, where do you pinpoint the the heart of that shift and where he moved away from someone who might even have been ordained at an early stage? Um, to effectively losing that faith, do, do, do you pinpoint one particular element, event? I, 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 I prefer not to really, because it is a process with Darwin. I mean, it's partly it starts with the kind of Christian he was, 
Um, it's partly what he experienced on the Beagle, and it's partly the fact he's away for five years or so, and towards the end he's writing, you know, mm. the idea of a, a country rectory seems just absurd to me. Mm. Um, there's a conversation between him and a fellow ordinand that's recorded by the fellow ordinand, although not by him, that they have in just before Darwin goes off for the Beagle, probably six months or so, in which Darwin says, you know, for various reasons he didn't think he could ever be ordained, because you know, even during this orthodox period, mm. it, as it were, his heart wasn't in it. But if, 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 you, if you, in a sense, have to pinpoint any particular moments or any particular periods, it is, there is this two-year period when he gets back from the Beagle, so from 1837 mm. through 1838, the beginning of 1839, he's developing his theory, where the penny drops with regards to natural selection and the Paleon mm. foundations of his faith are washed away. doesn't kill his Christianity, certainly doesn't kill a belief in God, but as I said, it rather limps on into the 1840s, and then mm. the death blow to his Christianity at least comes with Annie's death in 1851. Mm. And one of the things that's so intriguing about Darwin is that um, he probably was quite typical of a lot of people of that period. Mm. His his kind of faith would have been mm. a very standard kind of faith which explains why it it was so vulnerable mm. Um, mm. to the developments in, in, in science and also in biblical history and mm. so on that were, that were happening at, at that time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we yeah. have therefore mm. learned a huge amount mm. um, as, mm. as a, you know, the wider Christian church about um, deepening our own faith so that it can take account of those kind of questions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, in one regard, he did a tremendous favour yeah. to, to, to Christian theology like that, because obviously towards, you know, by the end of the 17th century, after the, um, you know, in a sense, the, the bloodshed of the wars of religion and you know, the, um, the, the, the failure of the, um, the, the uh, sort of, um, millennium to turn up in, in the 1650s and the country itself Britain being torn apart by civil war there's obviously there is a turn slowly towards natural theology we can't rely on ecclesiastical hierarchy we can't rely on scripture because these are you know these are partisan um, pieces of, of 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 data but we can rely on the natural world because it's self-evident and anyone can read it off the natural world and it's and it's you know it's not victim to these sectarian influences but of course, yep. you know, it, it's nothing like as simple as that. And it, in a sense, it takes Darwin to, to unravel that particular stream of natural theology. And it's a, it's a kind of Europe-wide thing, isn't it? Because I, mean, I did quite a lot of work a number of years ago on, on Blaise Pascal. And, and you know, in the 17th century in France, he was in some ways facing a similar kind of approach to apologetics, which was quite rationalist and saying, well, you know, Cain, you know, now there are questions around about the unity of Christianity because, you know, the Reformation's come about, Christianity's been fragmented, we can't really know what's the real version, so maybe it's all untrue. And, um, you know, a number of apologists in France at the time are saying, OK, you know, but that's OK, we can still show this to be true by arguments from these proofs and that proofs and arguments from miracles and nature and everything else. And, and even at that stage, Pascal, I think, was someone who was sort of prescient enough to know that actually that wasn't going to work somehow. That very rationalist approach to, to doing it, to, to, to establishing the truth of God, was never going to quite function. And then, of course, you've got David Hume and his arguments you know, that, that undermine some of the traditional arguments of the existence of God. And Darwin is just another mm. stage in that story of the unravelling of a, of, a, of a kind of Christian theology or a kind of approach to God which which actually wasn't the right way anyway. Mm. I mean, like, so we're know, sort of saying that the faith that Darwin lost needed to be lost. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit <laughs> like you know, right? Pascal's yeah. thing yeah. about, you know, the God of the philosophers, not the God of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that was very often the God of many mm. educated European people in the mm. 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. 
Um, and it's such an important thing to say because otherwise, it, it, the way it's simplistically put is that Darwin lost his faith because of a theory about the evolution of the world, which we all, which most of us now accept to be largely true, and therefore um, people would argue that we should also lose our faith. Mm. But actually, you're unpicking those, mm. and you're saying mm. that the kind of faith that Darwin had to begin with um, was peculiarly vulnerable. Mm. Because it was not based on yeah. um, the kind of revelation had no part in it. Yeah. Uh, there, there was no sense of a you know a, a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, um, and as I said, the cross was. I mean, as far as I'm aware, entirely absent. I don't even recall mm. reading a reference to the cross in any of his mm. correspondence. Which and we find it, extraordinary now. Yes, yeah. and isn't is it fair to say that it wasn't the theory of evolution that did in his faith? It was it was the violence that he observed as a naturalist within the natural order? Well, um, I'm not so sure about that. I okay. mean, that's certainly a lot to do with it. That's certainly an awful lot to do with it. What you get, he, Darwin was an assiduous note-taker. He took notes about everything, which is very fortunate because you can actually trace the development. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can trace the development of his thinking when he gets back mm. from the Beagle and he has these notebooks and where he's jotting down things that he's observed, things that he's read, things that he's thought... And it's in these notebooks that the theory is first developed. You get that famous tree diagram, which is, you know, almost a, the first, the, the first visual depiction of, of evolution by natural selection. But what you also get in the notebooks is this wrestling. There is no sense that he is dancing on God's grave gleefully. Mm. That evolution has done away with all this mumbo jumbo. He's he's wrestling with these newly developed ideas and what may be an intellectually tenable idea of God. So there are certain things that Darwin can reconcile. So evolution does away with special creation, the idea that God you know, created each species as it is. Um, um, but Darwin reasons, you know, is that such a great view of God anyway? Really, isn't it more magnificent? And, and Darwin paints himself like a kind of biological Newton here. Isn't it more magnificent to uncover the rules governing the development of life? Is that not more suitable for him who said, let there be light? But... Then there is the issue of suffering, yeah. and it's the fact that creation is not as beneficent yes. or ben- as benign as he had led, to, led to believe, mm-hmm. and that yeah. that is a, that is a, a really critical issue for yes. him. Mm. And does he also come uh, in his voyages come into contact with people of other faiths? Is that another issue for him? No, I don't think he does really, because uh, ironically, it's um, if anything, it's 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 a bol- it's a bolster to his faith. The other thing we haven't explored is that Darwin's faith was a very English, very mm. civilising thing. The Beagle was also a mission ship. It was carrying three missionaries, mm. uh, uh, three Fugaeans and, and a chap from the Church Mission Society to set up a mission in the Tierra del Fuego, which incidentally was an utter farce. Mm. That The well-meaning early Victorian gentle gentlemen and, 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 and their wives had, produced, had offered them things like soup tureens and, <laughs> and napkins, exactly the kind of thing you need for a mission in South yeah. America. Yeah, of course. But he does encounter other missions in the South Pacific and in New Zealand, and he's very, very impressed by it. And really the only time Darwin writes explicitly about Christianity in any of his published books, it's about missionary activity. And he basically says at one point, anyone who's unlucky enough to be shipwrecked on a desert island in the South Pacific, better jolly well hope the missionaries have got there first. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, there is, you know, it's the survival of the most fortunate. <laughs> but there's a sort of recent theory in a, in a recent book, isn't there, that... that the um that for Darwin, the theory of natural selection also was in some way uh, something that's that strengthened the argument about the equality of all races. 
yeah. and was therefore part of the sort of anti-slavery movement mm. in the 19th century as well. Is that yeah, that's something? by um, Adrian Desmond and James Moore. They, they wrote a biography of Darwin about 20 years ago, and this year they wrote a book called Darwin's Sacred Cause, Race, mm. Slavery and the Quest for Origins. Darwin's family were profoundly abolitionist, mm. and indeed the Wedgwood well, clan the Wedgwood was well, very much right, so, yeah. yes. Um, mm. And they had helped fund the um, abolitionists in the early years of the 19th century. What was it? What they cover very interestingly is that you know, the arguments that are driven, not, not not been the only arguments, but the arguments that are driven abolition have been fundamentally biblical. You know, we're all made in God's image mm. and we're all equal. Mm. Now, for various reasons, sort of intellectual trends that we've been talking about, those arguments began to lose their force in the 1820s and the 30s, when slavery itself was still to be abolished um, in colonies and, of course, in the states. And what was replacing it was a kind of pseudoscience, which was based on some pseudobiology, which showed, which proved that blacks and basically non-whites were inferior, and therefore they were unable to attain any height of civilization. Mm. And Moore and Desmond argued that this was, in a sense, the driving passion behind Darwin's science. It didn't distort his science, but it was the engine for it, mm. because he was passionately concerned to show that, biologically speaking, we are all, as it were, created equal, not simply theologically. Yeah. Mm. Uh, can one say something on, uh, in defence of the uh, farcical missionaries on this you know the fact that they were taking uh, soup terrines and napkins presumably wedgewood soup terrines um you'd quite like that wouldn't you mike <laughs> soup terrines and napkins <laughs> well, and I, I would, but but yeah. is it actually a way of saying they are capable of uh, of civilization in this albeit very preconceived way is, that would certainly be a positive spin <laughs> 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 I, 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 it might be i think certainly the you know accounts of it I've read just it was through ignorance. Just they just weren't aware what conditions were like there. And Darwin himself, he says he never forgets his first experience there. Mm. I mean, it was just absolutely astonishing. He never thought something like that existed mm. in mm. terms of the, the, sort of the primitiveness of the tribes. Sorry, keep going. Oh, I was going to take another tact. Why don't you go? Well, I was going to take a different tact too. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask about the, the early reception of Darwin by mm. theologians and, and Christian leaders and that kind of thing. Because it, it wasn't as negative mm. as we often, we often and also, think, is it? I was going to take the same tack as well. So there you go. I sense also that the, a lot of the opposition came not so much from theologians, but actually from fellow scientists, did it not? That uh, other scientists were saying, actually, does this theory actually make sense of the evidence? Mm. Um, and so, you know, the, again, the popular image that the church came in to sort of oppose this brave mm. soul person like the Galileo myth as well, yeah. actually isn't That's true. right. That's right. So it was right? very mixed, very mixed reaction. That the earliest letter Darwin ever received about the origin of species, which he received six days before it was published because he'd sent advanced copies through, was from Charles Kingsley. The Reverend Charles Kingsley, who was shortly to become professor of history at Cambridge University, lauding the book to the skies. Frederick Temple was also another um, mm. very early um, defender of Darwin and latterly, obviously, Archbishop of Canterbury. Asa Gray, who was one of Darwin's, was Darwin's greatest advocates in America, very, very um, sincere congregationalist. Um, on the other hand, there was obviously a, a objection from Christians, and everyone knows the story of Bishop. Sam Wilberforce and, and Huxley in Oxford in 1860, but as you say, most of the most many of the objections in 18 in the early 1860s, as soon as the book was published, were scientific, mm. and um, in particular, 
um, Louis Agassiz, who's in America, and Richard Owen, who's in um, the UK, very highly respected mm. scientists, mm. lay into the theory for, you know, serious and, you know, and quite, at the time, sustainable scientific reasons. I mean, we don't actually have, of course, a transcript of the debate, the famous debate between Huxley and uh, Wilberforce, but, but I gather that a lot of Wilberforce's objections were scientific rather than theological. He, he'd written a very long review of Adrian Species in, in the Athenaeum magazine, which was, it wasn't a rant, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, was, it was quite mm-hmm. serious. Mm-hmm. We, we do have accounts of the, of the 1860 meeting, and they differ. Okay. But the one thing we do know is that um, Huxley's supposedly you know, famous repast about preferring to be descended from a monkey than from a man who uses his abilities to ridicule the truth it is almost definitely not true. Huxley would not have said that, could not have said that in, mm. in, in that particular circumstance. You, you do not call, you don't even suggest, mm. you know, associate, you know, being descended from a monkey with a bishop in those situations. Not, it is, not a dumb thing. I don't know, though. <laughs> but times have changed. <laughs> but that, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess, you know, what Darwin is, is doing is he's saying that there's this range of evidence here that he's encountered on the Beagle and his... And his um, scientific researches, and here is a theory that seems to make the best sense of it all. And uh, he's aware, even at that stage, isn't he, that there are bits that you can argue about, and may, it seems to make better sense than the old theory. But you still got to work it out. And other people are suggesting, "Hang on a minute, does it work? Does it fit this bit of evidence?" And so on. That's the process in which science works. And I, I think it's a it's a point Alistair McGrath makes, isn't it, that that actually in some ways theology works the same way that Christian faith says. Actually, we think this is when you take in the totality of life and experience and everything else and what we've experienced and we, what we observe of the world, this this actually seems to make the best sense. Now, that doesn't mean it answers all the questions. And there are some things that we have to sort of uh, try and work at and, and puzzle over and things like the problem of suffering, which isn't always easy to, to, to find an answer to. But actually, to us, this makes the best sense of the way the world is. So actually, in that sense scientific and theological approaches are are actually quite similar it's not the case as of course all the strident atheists want to say is that science gives you absolute truth and faith gives you sort of fuzzy stuff that you can't quite prove Mm. but equally not the other way around i mean in in, for both science and faith if um if what we're looking for is truth then Mm. the truth will actually deepen our understanding, won't it? I mean, that's one of the things I'm mm. finding interesting about this discussion is that as a result of Darwin, we actually do better theology. Yes. Um, mm. And mm. we would expect that if our God mm. is a God mm. of truth, wouldn't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that we actually don't need to be afraid of these kind of challenges because they will deepen our understanding mm. if we yes. face them in God. And, and, you know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, scientists in the early 19th century were clergymen. And that was partly a social thing. They were, it wasn't a professional activity the word scientist wasn't invented until 1834 clergy were the only people with the education and the money to do science in the Mm. 18th century but nonetheless they were serious scientists and interestingly darwin writes in his autobiography that when he went on the beagle he believed in the literality of the opening chapters of genesis and the creation and the flood and all the rest of it and, and that's one of those things that's a bit dubious, really, because Darwin was, even at that, Darwin was a geologist before he was a biologist. Mm. And he mixed in reasonably elevated geological circles at the time. And he would have known that the geologists of the time, people like William Buckland, um, who were also clergymen, had 
for already 10 years then been casting very significant doubts on the literality of the opening chapter of Genesis. But they were clergymen, and they took it in their stride. And <laughs> because studies and, and theology generally had not necessarily been taking the opening chapters of Genesis, lit, gen, chapters of Genesis literally since, since, since the Jewish first times. Century. <laughs> I think it was the century BC, yeah, yes, or yeah. probably more than that, actually. Yeah. Well, um, there is this interesting thing, isn't there, that you know, this was actually, comparatively speaking, a modern problem. You know, this, yes. this goes back to the Reformation and, and the desire to you know, get away with kind of slightly kind of loopy reading of texts and, yes. and focus on literal ones and that means you can only read text literally and that means that this text must be read literally and that conjures your problem for you well and one of the things i learned from your other little book on on darwin was how um 20th century a phenomenon um creationism is yeah. I, I had you know because the impression it gives and the impression that a lot of atheist <laughs> writers give is that it's always been the kind of mm. what the church believed and it's only when darwin came along that it went away from that but it's, actually it's yeah. a relatively recent phenomenon we uh, are running out of time so we need to draw our discussion to a close um so nick thank you very much for coming thank in. you it's been a pleasure to talk about so it. this tell us the name of the book again Graham, the name so of we the book is um read up. nick spencer and god by charles darwin no no sorry um, <laughs> it's uh, called darwin and god by nick spencer published by sbck and uh, if you want to uh, look at this more. It's a very, very good uh, book. It's not too long, only about 140 pages, so it's a, a very readable, uh, and Nick does write very well indeed, uh, if I can embarrass him. I kind of think you can read on the Victoria line, isn't it, I suppose? If exactly. If God right, pod yeah. gets drowned out. Exactly. <laughs> if you can't hear Mike, he can read this book instead. <laughs> so, um, uh, again, thank you for listening, those of you uh, who've got this far, and um, we will uh, be back again very shortly. So, uh, goodbye from Jane. Bye. And Michael. And Michael, yes, well, yes, okay, yes, if you yes, must. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Nick as well. Goodbye. Thank you again. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.